0: Hello everyone, I'm Elizabeth Daigle, adult life pastor here at ACAC, and I'm honored to bring you the word as we continue our journey through the book of Genesis. We're in the middle of our story of Abraham, who's known as the father of our faith, because God chose him, established a covenant with him, so that he would be a vehicle of God's blessing to the whole world. Abraham was blessed to be a blessing. But what exactly are blessings? I mean, we sure talk a lot about them, don't we? We send blessings. We speak blessings. We even wear blessings. Have you seen the t-shirts that say hashtag blessed? But what does it really mean? Well, like anything else, the same word can mean different things to different people. But to kingdom people, the word blessing as used in the Bible refers to the gifts of God's grace. Blessings spring from the promises of God. They're evidences of his favor, his protection, his provision, and his presence. But blessings are more than just one-sided. They're more than just something you receive. They're also something you give away. And it's this two-way nature of blessing that Abraham was charged to live out. He understood that his blessings from God afforded him great privilege But they also came with great responsibility. So with this concept of blessing in mind, let's look at chapter 18. But to keep it all in context, I want to review for a moment the two different paths that Abraham has already traveled. Two weeks ago in chapter 16, Pastor Rock described Abram and Sarai's experience on the path of disappointment. And they traveled that road walking in their flesh as they attempted to achieve God's promise on their own terms, and in their own strength. Last week, in Genesis 17, Pastor Allen ushered us down the path to the promise. Abraham accessed this path by his determined choice to walk in the Spirit, follow El Shaddai, the great supplier, and live in full submission to him. And to symbolize that transformation, God changed his name from Abram to Abraham. So now, as we come to Genesis 18, a transformed man, Abraham, is ready to live into the promise, the promise of blessing. And I've entitled today's sermon, The Path to the Blessing. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege, I know, to break the bread of the word and nourish your saints today. But I cannot do that in my own strength or power or understanding, only through your Spirit, And so, Heavenly Father, I pray that truly my words will be from your heart to your people for this day. I pray, Father, for that spirit empowerment of speaking and listening and the receipt of truth from your heart to all of ours. We thank you for your presence. We thank you for your power. And, Lord, we thank you for your blessings. And we pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, chapter 18 opens with a description of what appears to be a very ordinary day. We find Abraham resting, taking his siesta at the entrance of his tent. After finishing the main meal of the day, he and everything around him slowed down. But don't be fooled, because God often appears in the midst of the ordinary, and the spiritually wise are always looking, discerning, so they can intercept God and recognize when he's on the move. For Abraham, that ordinary day turned into an extraordinary one because suddenly everything changed when God intersected his path. Will you turn with me now to Genesis 18? We'll begin reading. I'm going to use the New Living Translation. We'll begin reading at verse number 1. The Lord appeared again to Abraham near the oak grove belonging to Mamre. One day, Abraham was sitting at the entrance to his tent during the hottest part of the day. He looked up and noticed three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he ran to meet them and welcomed them, bowing low to the ground. My Lord, he said, if it pleases you, stop here for a while. Rest in the shade of this tree while water is brought to wash your feet. And since you've honored your servant with this visit, let me prepare some food to refresh you before you continue on your journey. All right, they said, do as you have said. So Abraham ran back to the tent and said to Sarah, hurry, quick, get three larges, large measures of your best flour, knead it into dough and bake some bread. Then Abraham ran out to the herd and chose a tender calf and gave it to his servant who quickly prepared it. And when the food was ready, Abraham took some yogurt and milk and the roasted meat, and he served it to the men. As they ate, Abraham waited on them in the shade of the trees. We've just been told it's the hottest part of the day, and we're told that because nobody traveled then. This was a unique experience. You get the sense that Abraham was doubly surprised, because as he was resting and taking it all in, suddenly three men appeared. One minute he was all alone, and the next minute he wasn't. Now, we've already been told that the visitor, one of the visitors was indeed the Lord. But as we read the account, we're not sure Abraham has realized that yet. What is clear from the account is that Abraham's quick action, not bad for a 99-year-old, showed that he recognized these were not ordinary travelers because he dropped everything to entertain them and care for their needs in a luxurious fashion. Notice the text says Abraham looked and saw. You see, he looked with physical sight, but he saw with spiritual insight. And because he had been in the Lord's presence before, Abraham recognized Yahweh. Abraham's experience illustrates for us that the more time you spend in the presence of the Lord, the more quickly you'll recognize it when he's in your midst. James 4, 8 confirms it. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. When you move to engage with him, he will move to engage with you. Think about it. Jesus never turned anyone away. He embraced the young, the old, the sick, the poor, the religious, the pagans. He reached out to those on the inside and to those who had never been invited in. And his invitation still stands. Everyone is welcome, but you must come. And when we do come, Abraham has something to teach us about our attitude. Notice, Abraham responded at once. He attended to his guests immediately. He made them a priority. And so must we. When God shows up, we must be willing to drop everything to interact with the living God. Notice he also assumed a position of reverence and respect. Remember, Abraham had a staff of over 300. Yet he asked his wife to help him personally prepare the meal. And after he served the meal, he stood to see what else he could do. And as they ate, he stood attentively. Now it's remarkable because Abraham was not only wealthy, he was powerful. And yet he quickly set aside his position. Our Lord Jesus did the same. Matthew tells us, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like Jesus, Abraham set aside his rights and his privilege and served. Let's look back at the text, because following the meal, there is a shocking announcement for Abraham and Sarah. Look at verse 9. Where is Sarah, your wife? the visitors ask. She's inside the tent, Abraham replied. Then one of them said, I will return about this time next year, and your wife, Sarah, will have a son. Sarah was listening to this conversation from the tent. Abraham and Sarah were both very old by this time, and Sarah was long past the age of having children. So she laughed silently to herself and said, How could a worn-out woman like me enjoy such pleasure, especially when my master, my husband, is also so old? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, Can an old woman like me have a baby? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she denied it, saying, I I didn't laugh. But the Lord said, no, you did laugh. Well, it's clear that Sarah had been listening, probably standing right up by the open tent flap. And I imagine that when she heard her name, she leaned in even more closely, so When she heard the timing of the promise, she couldn't help but laugh. But she laughed silently, silently, you know, without making a sound. But even so, the Lord heard. Can you imagine how terrified she would have been when the Lord called her out? Right there in front of everyone. How humiliating. But wait, how did he know what she had been only thinking? It can be a terrifying thought, but the Lord knew exactly what Sarah was thinking, because he knows what each one of us is thinking. He always gets the last word, because he knows the hearts and minds of all. It's as if the writer of Psalm 44 wrote right to Sarah. God would surely have known it, for he knows the secrets of every heart. The Lord did indeed hear the thoughts of Sarah's heart, and he wasn't going to let her laughter slide. Because her laughter revealed her heart, and in her heart was doubt. Now, we can't be hard on Sarah, can we? I mean, come on. She's like 90 years old. Her girlfriends are having their great-great-grandchildren. They're not first-time mothers. In the natural, what the visitor had promised was absurd and impossible. Of course she laughed. And if you remember, in the chapter before, Abraham had also laughed when God announced the promised son. So what's the difference? They both laughed. Well, the difference is the attitude of Sarah's heart. Seems that Abraham's laughter was kind of a this is too good to be true kind of laughter, a rejoicing kind of laughter, not a rejecting no, this could never happen kind of laughter. God knows the meaning behind our words, our reactions, and even our thoughts. But you see, God confronted Sarah not to shame her, but to invite her into a deeper place of faith. He wasn't done with Sarah. He had new places to take her because he's not playing. He's not playing. He didn't play with Sarah. He wasn't, he's not playing with any of us. And he wouldn't let her lack of faith go unnoticed because faith is the currency of blessing. And God wanted to bless her. He wants to bless us. But blessing comes by way of faith. Now, to be clear, even though God challenged her on her lack of faith, he did not write her off. No, the fact that the promised child did come Within the next year, right on schedule, is evidence that Sarah repented, God forgave, and she was restored. Because in all his knowledge, all that God knows about the deepest attitudes and intentions of our hearts, he always leads with love. God is love, and he loves us. He wants what's best for us. And so he asks us to trust him because only he knows what that is. Now, this first scene in chapter 18 opened with Abraham's invitation to the Lord and the visitors. And the second scene also opens with an invitation. But this time the Lord is inviting Abraham. Let's look at verse 17 together. Should I hide my plan from Abraham? The Lord asked for Abraham will certainly become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. I have singled him out so that he will direct his sons and their families to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. Then I will do for Abraham all that I have promised. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. So here we have stated the reason while. Why Abraham was considered worthy of inclusion in this conversation. Abraham was faithful. Faithful to believe in God's covenant promise and faithful to act in accordance with that promise. He was faithful as he led his household. And as a result of that faithfulness, he enjoyed an intimate relationship with God. James 2.23 confirms it. Abraham believed God and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. He was even called the friend of God. Now, Abraham's experience isn't supposed to be unique, but it shows us what an ever-deepening relationship with God can look like. It's a mutual relationship marked by love, honesty, trustworthiness, and mutual respect. Truly, we can have as much of God as we want, but we must be willing to sacrifice ourselves. How much time are you willing to sacrifice for him? Because any friendship involves the requirement of time. You get to know each other by spending time together. And God is no different. True friends know each other intimately. And here we see two friends who know each other communicating. They're sharing their plans. They're discussing something between the two of them. You know, it's almost as if the Lord and the angels were on the Sodom and Gomorrah task force, and Abraham was invited into the room where it happened, where the plan went down. And God trusted Abraham with that information because he had been proven faithful by his actions. And their mutual friendship was not just for Abraham's own sake or even for singularly God's enjoyment, but as a vehicle of God's blessing, as one Commentator called it a channel of grace to Israel and then the world. Let's continue reading at verse 22. The other men turned and headed towards Sodom, but the Lord remained with Abraham. Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for your sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing destroying the righteous along with the wicked why well, you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same surely you wouldn't do that should not the judge of all the earth do what is right and the lord replied if i find 50 righteous people in sodom i will spare the entire city for their sake i want to summarize the rest of the conversation abraham continued to negotiate with god by appealing to his character His perfect justice rooted in his righteousness. He entreated God in the humblest terms to consider sparing the city if 45 are found, then 40, then 30, then 20, and finally 10. And in verse 32, the Lord answered, Then I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. When the Lord had finished this conversation with Abraham, he went on his way, and Abraham returned to his tent. Now, there's no indication in the text that God would not have continued in the conversation, but Abraham seemed satisfied with 10, and so he stopped petitioning the Lord. Perhaps he'd done the math, and he figured that surely Lot's family would be covered in those 10 righteous people. But sadly, that wasn't the case, and we'll learn next week. But Abraham, out of compassion, engaged in this extraordinary conversation with God. So what do we learn about God in this divine exchange? First and importantly, we learn that God hears, engages with, and is moved to action by our prayers. Now notice, Abraham did more than casually ask. This wasn't a drive-by prayer. He made repeated, earnest requests. He pleaded with God for the lives of those in Sodom. He implored God for the sake of the city. Second, we learn that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That's what Peter meant when he wrote, He is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. And finally, we will learn what Abraham declared. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes, God will always do right. Deuteronomy 32, verse 4, He is the rock. His deeds are perfect. Everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong, how just and upright he is. And what can we learn from Abraham? Well, we learn that Abraham used his privilege as God's friend, not for his own benefit, but to seek the rescue of the city. Notice how boldly he asked the Lord to relent, not just the righteous, but the whole city, which meant he was seeking the welfare of the wicked too. And he asked for more than just his own people or his own family. He didn't say, let me send word to Lot so he can evacuate. No, he prayed by, based on God's righteousness that God would save. Abraham could have washed his hands of them all. Lot is the one who chose to live in the valley. The wickedness was already brewing there when Lot moved in. They have what they're coming. They, they're getting what they had coming. You know, that's certainly what Jonah did. When he learned that God was going to judge Nineveh, he was relieved. In fact, he was almost happy to hear that those wicked Ninevites were finally going to get it. But not Abraham. Quite the opposite. Abraham showed a heart of compassion and with great earnestness sought the good of all. And so should we. Because Abraham walked in the spirit with humility. Three times throughout his exchange with God, he acknowledged his unworthiness as compared to God. You see, he never lost sight of God's holiness. He never got flippant or demanding. Abraham walked in the spirit by fully submitting to the Lord. He had learned that as he engaged with El Shaddai. And so he listened for God. And then he waited for God to answer. And when he did, Abraham accepted that answer. And lastly, Abraham walked in the spirit by demonstrating complete confidence in God's character. He trusted God. And he could trust God because he knew God. He knew God was righteous, he knew God was kind, and he knew God was loving. And when Abraham got word that God was going to destroy the city, even though it was reportedly a very wicked city, he knew he could meet God on his terms. Appealing to his justice. Well, that was then, and this is now, and so what about us? As I look around our country, sadly, some of our cities are burning, literally and figuratively. I mean, we're faced with a pandemic, acts of racial injustice, social unrest, and political strife. And it's the choice of some, even some in the church, to wash their hands of any responsibility and to collectively turn their faces away, to cloister up or passively disengage and remain casual in the sight of the suffering and the rising death tolls. Friends, in all the turmoil, we must remember that God cares for this world so much that he sent his one and only son to save it, and his arm is not weakened with the ages. He still has power to save. And just as he chose Abraham to bear witness to his goodness and proclaim the hope he offers, so now we as the church, we are the chosen ones. We are charged with the same task for this generation. We who have been invited into friendship with God need to do more than just enjoy our intimacy and enjoy that relationship, but we need to seek his rescue for the cities that are burning from the fires of injustice and crisis. We need to move out. We must be on mission with him. In fact, if we're not on mission with God, are we truly his friends? Now, such a missional life with God is hard work. And that's no surprise because the evil forces of the universe are against us. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenly places. And the only way to combat those spiritual powers is with spiritual weapons. And Ephesians 6 makes clear that that, what that weapon is And it's the same weapon we just interacted with Abraham. He exemplified it. It's prayer. To follow the godly, righteous example of Abraham, our father, we need to fall on our knees before the throne of God because ultimately prayer that aligns us with the heart of God moves us into action as privileged doers of his word. Now there's a tension because our doing must be aligned with his strategy. And our doing will only be profitable if it's initiated by the Spirit and empowered by His vision. But when we engage in prayer, our actions become soaked with it. And we won't miss the opportunity to engage with the living God and allow His agenda to engage with us so we can be His hands and feet. Look, you don't need to look far to see the needs. So don't give in to the paralyzing inactivity or the, the push to be overwhelmed. But will you join me in lifting up your own bold prayers for our lost city, for our lost region, and for the lost in the world? I know it's a daunting task because we face an enemy who seeks to steal, steal kill, and destroy. But we have the power of the living God on our side. And he is greater still. And because we have now been given that mantle of Abraham, it's now our privilege, privileged responsibility, born out of the blessing that he has given to us as his church, so that we can be vehicles of blessing to the world around us. So, how do we do it? Well, we pray, we humble ourselves. We move into the throne room with respect, recognizing God's holiness, and we intercede on behalf of the lost around us. Will you join me? Will you join me in the battle? Will you join me on your knees? Will you join me in fervent prayer for the lost around us, the lost in your own family, the lost in your own neighborhood, the lost here in our city, and the lost around the world? Brothers and sisters, truly, if we all will join in with a unified voice and commit to lift our earnest prayers before the Lord, he will hear. He who listens will answer. And think how many could be introduced then to the path of blessing as we do. We must be willing to engage in the fight or more will be lost to the fire. The prophet Zechariah declared that it's not by power and not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Are you willing to join me in the battle so that we might be part of God's unleashing power in our day? May you join me in prayer? Father, I would like to call on all who feel the confirmation of your spirit right now to commit to join in the fight. I'd like to call all who feel the movement of your spirit to commit to pray for a specific amount of time. For those who pray earnestly, Lord, I pray that they would increase their prayers. For those who have never engaged in the fight and do not pray regularly for the lost, I pray that they would step into that water and they would join us in earnest prayer for the lost. Father, I pray that you would churn in our hearts a compassion for those around us who do not know you and that together we might be a mighty source of blessing for our city and the world. For we pray it in Jesus' name, amen.